You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. How many of you have seen the videotapes in Encouragement? How many have read the book in Encouragement? All right, now raise your hand if you've done one or the other. What on earth are you here for? You already have what I had to say on it. It's all old stuff. Well, I assume that there would be a fair percentage that had either read the book or seen the tape, so I'm really not going to cover the material in the tapes or the book. Um, obviously, what I said in the tapes and the books and the book um, is, in my mind, uh, the central message that I'd like to say to the widest audience possible in terms of the topic of encouragement. But I'm kind of uh, going to assume at least some some uh, familiarity with uh, the way I talk about encouragement in those two sources. And uh, what I say today will have some overlap, certainly, but will not be just uh, going through the same thing that I covered in the tapes in the book. The tapes in the book, by the way, are pretty well parallel. There's 13 tapes and there's 13 chapters in the book. So it's kind of the same thing, one in written form and one in, um, one in videotape form. <clears throat> you have an outline in your notebooks on helping people to be encouragers. And I don't want to spend the next two hours just lecturing. I'm just going to make a few comments here and there, and then I want you to interact with me. Um, I want you to think out loud with me. It's a little bit of a big group for a whole lot of just roundtable discussion, but let's, let's do what we can with that. Please feel the freedom to interrupt and ask questions, which you don't have the freedom to do in some other meetings. So the workshops are meant to be a little more uh, relaxed and chatty and interruptible, so don't, don't let me just drone on, which I probably will do if you don't stop me. What I want to do is just make a comment about each of the points in the outline. I'm going to follow the outline fairly carefully and uh, embellish the brief outline with some thoughts that I hope you'll find helpful. The first heading in your outline is recognizing the profound need for encouragement. Let me just suggest to you is that as you begin thinking about um, developing an encouraging community of believers... Uh, it seems to me that, that we need to begin with the re- realization that it's very rare for there to be an encouraging community of believers. It simply, simply isn't common. In our core class, you've heard me use that term before back at Grace Seminary, we had three uh, professors uh, stand up and give testimony a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one was a man I've mentioned several times already, Chuck Smith, just a very, very close friend of mine, a very astute theologian, very bright guy, very godly guy. Two other fellows that I know less well, but also equally godly and astute, both Old Testament theologians, uh, Hebrew scholars. And um, I asked them both to get up, and all three of them, to get up and share in my core class something about uh, their own spiritual pilgrimage. And one of the themes that was consistently running through all three of their comments was, uh, in their mind, the incredible disappointment that they've experienced in Christian community over the years. Incredible disappointment in Christian community that they really had felt uh, a real absence of, of, of meaningful encouragement from Christian brothers and sisters. Um, I don't know, that's been my experience. It certainly has been my experience. I feel very um, liable to be jumped on. You all feel that way? You kind of sense there's a lot of people out there hoping you're going to slip so they can get you. Now, carry that little extreme and you have paranoia. And... Um, and if that becomes an obsessive concern with you, then likely it's because there's something going on in your life because the Bible says the wicked flee when nobody is pursuing. 
And it may be that um, if there's a real concern for people out to get you, that uh, there's something that you know you ought to be gotten for. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, aside from that, it seems to me that there really is a deficiency so often in Christian community in terms of what it means to be, um, to be deeply encouraging. And yet, there, there's likely very few Christians that would not acknowledge how much they want to see Christian communities being very encouraging communities. My concern is that as we, whole, as we approach the whole topic of helping people to become encouragers, that you need to hear me once again sound one of my themes. And that is that you're simply not going to make it happen with a program. Um, I like to think that some of the tools that I've made available and many other tools as well are, are useful. Our videotapes, uh, God is blessed in certain circles. The book has been helpful to some, I'm sure. I trust that's the case. But, um, but there's no tool, there's no technique, there's no program that's going to make it all happen. There's been a number of churches that I'm familiar with who have decided we're going to make our church an encouraging community and we're going to use this tool and we're going to get this program and within a year and a half nothing's happened. It's fizzled. And uh, my suggestion to you as you think about as you think about wanting to have an effect on whatever your community happens to be, your local church, your Christian brothers and sisters, and moving people towards becoming more and more encouraging, so you have an encouraging community, think very patiently. Don't get grand ideas about some program that looks great in an overhead chart that you can sketch out for the whole church, get them all excited, have a pep rally for encouragement. Within a year, nothing's happened. Just be very, very patient. Go very, very slow and recognize that if you just get a couple of people to be thinking a little differently about what it, needs, about what it means to be encouraging, um, that you're really doing something. I've given a lot of thought to the topic of encouragement, yet I feel extremely uh, inexpert. Um, we were going out for an interns meeting just a couple weeks ago. Some of our interns are here. And every year we select uh, four or five students from our current class to be with us for an extra year of training and call them interns. And that, that's become a very meaningful community for me, um, four or five of us and uh, myself and Dan. We get together a lot and have some very intimate chats, and that's kind of one of my major communities, and there's a lot of encouragement there. But a couple of weeks ago, as we were going out, I, I made the comment uh, to us as we were sitting over lunch. I said, how, how many of you are aware of things happening in your life right now that, that you simply would never bring up with this group? How many of you are really struggling with something, and the last thing you do is talk about it with this group? How many of you are aware that when you got in the car to meet us for lunch, that you took some of the struggles that you're having, you kind of set them on the side and said, that's not a topic for today? For whatever reason. Maybe because it was supposed to be a light, happy lunch, and who wants to be a downer? Um, or maybe because you wouldn't trust the people to respond the way you wanted them to do? Um, but for whatever reason, it seems to me that it's very standard for us to miss opportunities for profound encouragement through our own faults. And the reason I made the comment to that group was that I was aware of some things happening in my life. And as I got in the car to meet the, these people with whom I'm very close, to meet them for lunch, I just became aware and I just noticed myself taking a certain subject and saying, that's off limits. And this is a very close bunch of people to me. And I wasn't going to let myself be encouraged by them. I was determined that that wouldn't be the case. Do you see how, 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 how stubbornly dangerous self-protection is? How it just uh, ruins and uh, interferes with at least meaningful fellowship? It's a very hard topic, easy topic to put in some 13 videos, write a book about, but to make it happen in a person's life is, is very, very difficult. There's a profound need for encouragement, it seems to me, at least for two major reasons, and the first is the immobilizing effect of struggle. If, if I had given you this outline, and you see the first title is Recognizing the Profound Need for Encouragement, and um, point number one under that 
letter A here in the outline, is immobilizing effective struggle. If I gave that to you and said, uh, uh, develop the thought you think might come out of that heading for the next 10 minutes, what would you talk about? What is that heading? What do you think I want to talk about as I list this immobilizing effective struggle? What, what am I driving at with that heading? What's, what thoughts to occur to you? All right, people struggling internally can't really help anyone else. Do you want to say that without qualification? No, not really. Okay. Yeah, because if you, if you said that without qualification, then nobody's qualified to counsel unless they're living in absolute denial. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you used to say you can't minister from emptiness, and I think that's... Yeah, okay. All right, that if there's, if there's not some uh, honest wrestling with the struggle in a way that exhibits integrity and movement, that there's not going to be much in the way of movement towards others. If I'm really preoccupied with myself, I'm not into you at all. Somehow I have to be released from myself. Somehow the truth of God is to make me free to move towards you. And uh, so often we're not very free. That's one direction you might go with that, the immobilizing effect of struggle. Other thoughts occur to you? Yeah. All right. James 4, where James asks, why are there so many quarrels? Why is there so much strife in your midst? And he goes on to say, with the typical incisive clarity of the inspired writer, that the problem is because you demand certain things from each other and don't get it. And then he goes on to say in that passage that um, take your laughter and turn it into mourning. You know, get miserable. <laughs> you know, face yourself. Face, face, face some of your sinfulness. Um, and that's the root of liberation. Yeah. Other thoughts as you hear that, that heading. Yeah. How's that and uh, an immobilizing effect? I'm not sure. I see. Okay. Sure. Paul talks about the comfort that he's received, able to comfort other people. Yeah, a lot of directions to go with that. Let me let me just add add my thought to the good thoughts that have already been expressed. It seems to me that um, that uh, when we honestly face some of the struggles that we have, particularly in our families that one of the most natural things to do in the middle of struggle is to be immobilized, to feel like you just don't want to keep moving. You want to find some way to move away from the struggle and to move in a more pain-free sphere. You see, when when, uh, the writer of the Hebrews, I almost said Paul, that's a controversy, when the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, when he talks about let's get together and encourage one another, uh, the word for encouragement, and this was in the videotapes, I think, the word for encouragement uh, really means to, to, to prod along. When you think about encouragement, you, don't need, you shouldn't be thinking in terms of just kind of affirmational pats on the back. I don't mean to put that down. Nice to get some pats on the back once in a while. But that isn't what the word encourage means in the scripture. The idea is much more to come alongside of and, uh, and to stimulate on. And the reason encouragement is so important, it seems to me, is because struggle is very immobilizing. I don't feel like going on. Uh, the image that I think um, says, a, says a most, most clearly is the image of the long-distance runner um, who after he's gone part of the way and he's starting to get leg cramps and he's winded, he doesn't want to go on. Uh, he, he wants to quit. And the encourager is one who comes alongside and somehow has an effect on that person that encourages him to keep moving. Very, very strong thought there. 
You need to get hold of the fact that, that, that struggles are very immobilizing in the sense that I just want to shut down the struggle. Don't you want rest in the worst way? I have a friend who talked to a friend of his, a pastor friend who talked to a man in his church. And uh, this man was in the middle of major marital difficulties, was about to leave his wife, had a girlfriend. And, um, and he had been a, a pillar of the church. He had been a godly person. And he said to his friend, he said to the, my, my pastor friend, he said, I would give up my place in the kingdom for a moment of rest. That was a sentence that I heard about, oh, a year and a half ago. I think I mentioned that at a seminar recently. Some of you probably heard it. But he said that, I'd give up my place in the kingdom for a moment of rest. And I think one of the, one of the major themes of scripture is, you, you just don't quit now. Don't get weary in well-doing. You persevere, you keep moving, and you keep moving until, uh, ultimately, our Canaan rest, to use the Hebrews 3 and 4 type ideas, our Canaan rest is not now. There's a certain sense in which, yes, we have still waters to reside by. We have the Lord who gives us that deep sense of peace with himself. But, but that doesn't mean that there's not still a struggle. We're still contending against sin. We're contending with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, um, and when you start facing how bad things really are, most folks live on the basis of denial. When you start facing how bad things really are, the idea of more struggle just seems like it's not worth it. Couldn't things just be a little bit easier? And the notion of encouragement is to, is to somehow move alongside of the struggler and to reverse the immobilization. And to encourage the person to keep, keep, keep on trucking. You haven't yet resisted under blood. So hang in there. You know, God has a very strange way of encouraging. Let me just refer to a passage that you've heard me teach on before in Jeremiah 12. It's a well-known passage, and let me just comment on something which has struck me in the past. Jeremiah 12 very discouraged prophet was talking to the Lord and he wanted to quit he was in the middle of struggle he was living for the Lord as best he could but as he lived for the Lord he found out that there were problems the Lord has made certain promises to us one of his promises is you'll be persecuted you know wonderful promise anybody who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution if the world uh, hated me, it's going to hate you. If you follow me, you're going to have problems. It's going to hurt. It's going to be tough. And Jeremiah was living for the Lord effectively and been, in a proper way. And he comes on in Jeremiah 12, 1-4, and he basically says, Lord, things aren't going like I want at all. I just as soon stop this. I'm getting tired. He was getting immobilized in the struggle. Our Lord's response to him in Jeremiah 12, 5 seems like the absolute opposite of encouragement. Listen to what he says. If you have run with footmen and they've tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? Isn't that encouraging? If you fall down in a land of peace, then how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Jeremiah, I think it's tough now. Hang on, friend. It's going to get worse before it gets better. There's going to be struggles. What the Lord, it seems to me, is saying is, I'm never going to encourage, and I make this point later in the outline, I'm never going to encourage on the basis of pretense. I'm never going to give you any false hopes. But I'm telling you that what's coming up, the weight of glory reserved for you, makes any present affliction worth it absolutely. You get hold of the hope that's ahead of you, and you're going to be purified and motivated. The immobilizing effect of struggle, I just want to quit. Somehow we've got to learn, if we're going to be encouragers, we've got to learn what it means to make it worth the effort to keep on, knowing that as we keep on, the struggle is going to intensify. The immobilizing effect of struggle means that you and I need to learn what it means to be encouragers because people are going to be immobilized.
Yeah, in most cases, that's that's going to be the situation. There's not a there's not a sensitive Christian who doesn't struggle with being a rescuer. And uh, if you don't struggle with being a rescuer, you're probably aren't a very sensitive Christian. Because um, yeah, you don't want to tell somebody, hey, it's going to get worse. We just had a commencement at our school, Grace Schools, and the commencement speaker um, talked to the the, the 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 college graduates and started talking about how tough it was going to be. And my thought was, say something nice, you know. And then I thought, well, but he's got a point. And it, and it really is encouragement. You see, we have a very sloppy, secular idea of the word encouragement. The word encouragement is kind of the smile and the hey, stiff upper lip and upwards and onwards and all that sort of thing. And, and that's not biblical encouragement at all. Biblical encouragement is, look, you're in the middle of a race. Your legs are aching. Keep on running. The pain will get worse, but keep on running because it's worth it. We need to be holding out the carrot at the end. Are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's laid up for us. That's the perspective of Paul. Because Paul went through incredible suffering, talks about in Corinthians 12, talks about it and persecuted and beaten and all these kind of things, but not, you know, not totally destroyed, because I know what's ahead. And then I know what's ahead in terms of the glory that's ahead for me. I know what's ahead in terms of the bema. Therefore, I persuade men that you live to please the Lord and don't slack and don't, uh, don't back down. And God is not slack concerning his promises, so keep hanging in there. Read Hebrews 11. They all died never having received what they were hoping for, but it still is worth it because they died in faith. And if we, if we live by faith and die by faith, then it really is going to all work out. You'll, anybody who turns to the Lord and trusting him will never be ashamed. See, that's crucial. You're ahead of me by two points. And I couldn't agree more. I have it on my outline. Let me just follow up on that by talking about the second point, the tendency toward denial. Um, And I think this fits in very nicely with what's just being shared here, that there really is a strong tendency to want to deny the struggle. Don't don't you just long um, for for things not being uh, difficult in certain areas? And, of course, it's true that in most of our lives, we have some very positive sides to it. I mean, I talk about struggle and pain, but I like most of my life. You know, I mean, this, this is a struggling being here this week. You know, this is great. And I love it. I love teaching. I mean, this, this is fun. I'm having a great week so far. And a lot of people that I know I'm interacting with, I'm having a blast. So am I struggling? Well, in one sense, not at all. Yeah, I got a great marriage, got two nice kids, uh, got reasonable health. You know, what's a struggle? You know, I read about um, somebody put up here the focus on the family issue, talking about some of the some of the Russian uh, struggles, as well as the situation with um, somebody that was arrested in Greece um, uh, for for witnessing to some some kid and giving him a, a New Testament. And I say, I don't know those kind of struggles. They're not mine. They're not mine. And the point is that a lot of my life really is quite pleasant. Now, when I see that my life can be pleasant, I find myself just saying, let me try to pretend it's all pleasant. And because I have so much more fun uh, thinking about the pleasant parts of my life, which are considerable, because it's so much more fun to think about the pleasant parts of my life, I tend to want to deny those parts that, that aren't so pleasant. I tend to want to back away from them and to kind of minimize them and to focus on the pleasant. Don't you, don't you sense that in your own lives? There's a real strong tendency toward denial. And I see that so clearly in, in, um, in, in, most, in most Christian circles. We simply want to pretend that, that the struggles that are there are not as bad as they are, and number two, that they're more easily solved than they really are. 
one of the things I hope you get out of these tapes that you're watching in the morning is that re real change is a bit of a slow process. We were just looking over some of the comments that you made in each of the group. We asked you to make some comments. And a number of the comments uh, had, a, had the theme of um, it went slower than I expected. And I'll tell you, the more I mature as a counselor, the slower I get. Five, six years ago, when I did some demonstration counseling, my nickname was Zorro. You know, zit, 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 this sort of thing. And um, I don't do much Zorro stuff anymore. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty slow. If I want to be nice to myself, I'll call myself patient. But, um, but either way, there's, um, there, there's some slowness. And it seems to me that, that, um, that we need to understand that, um, that, that people are, are great deniers and it takes time to work through facing what's really going on. And, and, it, and it's important to recognize that in dealing with what's really going on, that takes time. There simply are no quick, fast solutions. And, and encouragement's a lifelong process. It takes time. People are just going to deny the fact of the struggle, and people are going to deny the tenacity with which the struggle maintains itself. They're going to deny that the solutions come slowly. There's real denial. Um, I, I think about a man that is in the ministry who has a real problem wife. And I say that not unkindly, but she's just kind of known in the community as a real problem. She really is. He's, uh, um, he's had some real struggles with his wife in terms of, uh, oh, just lots of things. And in um, talking with, with, uh, with him at one point about some of, some of the problems, when I began talking to him about his wife, boy, I tell you, it just turned off. Just turned off. The idea of really facing what's happening between him and his wife, he simply wasn't willing to do it. Sheer denial. I'm not willing to look at that. Let me tell you, the person I respect is the person who's committed to integrity. The person who's going to face what is, who is willing to face whatever is true. That's hard to do. Denial is the opposite of integrity in my, in my mind. If you live by denial, as most of us do to some degree, what are its effects? People who pretend the struggle is not what it really is, people who emphasize the positive parts of their life as a way of avoiding the negative. Nothing's wrong with, with uh, looking at the positive and, and praising God for the good times and the beautiful scenery and the good fellowship and all that. Praise the Lord for that and give thanks for that. But never praise the Lord for the good things as a way of avoiding dealing with the bad things. When you do that, that's denial. What are its effects? What are the effects of living on the strength of denial? What do you, what do you suppose? Out of balance? Yeah, how do you mean? I think that's right. How would you elaborate that? Things, but defining blessings as whatever is pleasant and not be driven to God so much as just kind of enjoying whatever comfort they can have for the moment. And as a result, one of the consequences of living by denial is going to be a tremendous loss of power in their ministry. You know, if you had to list ten names on your piece of paper right now of people that you know that have had really rich power in your life, a lot of you couldn't figure out ten names. Some of you could, of course. I couldn't, I couldn't do any more than ten, but I could list several. And I tell you, I just long to be on somebody's list. I want to be the kind of person that has power, and I really believe that that um, that the route to power, and I mean that in a good sense, not you know control and me big shot, but the route to having power for the Lord and making a difference for the kingdom, that that's going to that's going to depend on non-denial. That's going to depend on facing all of reality and finding out that God is sufficient to deal with whatever is going on. Then I can speak with power, as opposed to speaking with God's enough, provided we don't look at this. 
There's no power in that message. The preacher who hides behind a pulpit and never deals with life has very little power. But the preacher who, is, who, who preaches his sermons and goes out and finds out that what he's preached doesn't seem to make any difference in the people's lives and is willing to say, I'm confused. Because I believe the word of God has power. I believe that this is God's message, but I don't see it changing people's lives. Let me think. Let me take the reality of unchanged lives and think that through and pray and ponder and puzzle and sweat and anguish. That's the man who's going to have power. Oh, yeah. Sure. Beautiful thought. Yeah. You start, you start living by the Nile and many consequences. One can be kind of a pervasive sense of dis-ease. A pervasive sense of something's wrong. I don't know what it is. And that can degenerate into a real free-floating anxiety where anxiety attacks can kind of grip you now and then along the way and can really debilitate you and cause some real problems. Sure. Yeah. In the back? strong denial? How do you cut through denial? That kind of rich denial? Um, can, I, can I put you off and, and say that that really is the topic of the second shift in our three-shift, four-stage, or four-stage, three-shift model, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, we're going to be talking about, about cutting through, um, well, there, 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 there's two kinds of denial. One is denial of the pain, the other is denial of sin. And, and shift one is cutting through denial of pain, and shift two is cutting through denial of sin. So when I talk about the shifts, you'll hear me addressing your question. So because I will be talking about that in the lectures in the evening, let me just put you off for now and say that I will be covering that. Yeah. Oh, did you hear that? If you're living in denial, there will be a withdrawal from people. There'll be a loss of intimacy. There'll be a certain distancing. And the word that I use to summarize all that is the word rigidity. A whole lot of people that just become essentially very, very rigid, unable to flow, unable to, to move meaningfully, to give a sense of presence because of denial, because they've cut off a certain part of them. They cut off a certain part of their lives, a certain part of the reality. And as a result, they have to spend a great deal of their energy maintaining that denial, do you see? And therefore, their interaction with people is not designed to give of all that they are to be a blessing to somebody else. It's designed, above all, their final commitment is to maintain, uh, is to maintain the avoidance of whatever it is that scares them too much to face. And so they become rather rigid, rather stiff, rather legalistic. They often become people that specialize in seminars and self-discipline and push discipline as the key to the Christian life. Discipline, of course, is a key to the Christian life. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit to have self-control. I'm hardly knocking discipline. But I am saying that it's very easy to make discipline somehow the major virtue and to think that 1 Corinthians 13 is all about discipline as opposed to about love. And uh, usually the people that emphasize discipline to the point where you just sense a, a, a coldness and a military kind of a, kind of a, a rigid regime, they're, they're the people who are strongly engaging in denial of, of certain interpersonal uh, struggles. They're not willing to face. It seems to me that if we're going to be encouraging people, we're going to have to recognize that there are two categories of people that we're going to be needing to be encouraging. 
and they're summarized by these two points that I've already made. First is the person who's pretty honest, person who's facing what's going on in his life and is immobilized by it. We need to come alongside in an encouraging way and encourage the person to keep running the race. It's worth it. And secondly, the person who lives by denial, we have to learn to, by our personal sense of presence and our personal example of integrity, to move alongside people who deny and to encourage them that there really is reason to face what really is going on and, and in the facing of it, there's power available to you. But I just hate Christian cliches. I know you all do as well. We talk about the power that's available. Um, a whole lot of people have to acknowledge they have no idea what the word power means. I talked to a seminary professor a couple of months ago in the course of intensive conversation. I said, where have you had power in your ministry? And after 30 or 20 years of pastoring, he said, never. There is power, but not many people know much about it. Two kinds of people, then. Those who are mobilized by struggle and those who deny and become rigid. And those are people that we need to be concerned with encouraging. Encouraging them to keep on and encouraging them to face reality. Resulted all sorts of all sorts of physical things, whether they're psychosomatic, whether they're just uh, legitimately uh, organic dysfunction. Sure. Oh, okay. Let me repeat the questions from now on. I appreciate the comment. Her her point is simply that um, that we need to also throw into the equation here the fact that there are going to be a lot of physiological problems along the way that are going to be the result of the struggles that people have. And, um, and then this is kind of is a vicious circle because as we struggle and then have some physical problems as a result, then the physical problems add to our discouragement and to want to keep on going in the middle of all that is just a little bit much. You see, the real thing with most of us, it seems to me, is that, that life has a way of, of, of strengthening our commitment to finding some area of comfort. Life has a way of strengthening our commitment that we're going to be comfortable somehow. And the commitment to be comfortable is absolutely in opposition to the commitment to be godly. You're committed to one or the other. You're not committed to both. Now, I'm committed to being ultimately comfortable, and that makes sense to follow the Lord. Because I'm looking forward to heaven. That's going to be ultimate comfort forever and ever and ever. But until then, it's not to be that, and it must not be my commitment to pursue comfort. When comfort comes along, enjoy it and praise the Lord for whatever you have that's comfortable and say, great. And don't feel guilty when you have a great bed to sleep in. Say, thank the Lord, this is super. You know, nothing's wrong with that. But don't make it your commitments. Yeah. much the right direction as I would see it. If there's no clear organic roots which, which require your specialized knowledge of the human body, then to treat it as, as somehow a functional symptom, that it's a behavior with a purpose that when the, when they, when the uh, dynamics are understood, the behavior makes sense. Yeah, valid. Let's move on to thinking through the dynamics of encouragement. What are some of, the, uh, some of the, the dynamics of encouragement? What does it mean to, how, how do we encourage? What are, how does encouragement process really work? And again, I've dealt with this in the book and the tapes and I think the, the, the essential basic ways, and I'm not covering that again, but just adding a few points for you to think through. Um, it seems to me that to understand that the uh, dynamics of encouragement, that at least three points can be made. And the first is that we really want to be reversing denial. 
Um, who was saying earlier that the real tendency up here in the front, this young lady up here was saying that um, there's a real tendency in wanting to be encouragers to, to, to saying things that kind of minimize the problem. Saying things that, that minimize the struggle and to, um, oh, to, to be kind of warm about it and say, hey, look, it isn't so bad, or others have it worse, or to not be as glib as that maybe, but to essentially say something which, which is a way of saying it really isn't as bad as you make it out. You see, the, the Lord did the exact opposite of that with Jeremiah. Jeremiah said it's terrible, and God says you haven't seen anything yet. And it seems to me that that's a very real pattern of the way God operates. What he says is that, yeah, down here, there's more struggle than you have any understanding of, but it's all worth it because of what's coming later. One of my favorite cliches is right now, in this present life, something's wrong with everything. But up there, nothing's wrong with anything. And that makes it worthwhile to face whatever's wrong with things down here. We simply have to uh, reverse denial. Never encouraged by pretending things are not as bad as they are. There's a fellow who's not in the room now. He's here at the seminar, a student of ours last year. And um, he and I were just chatting last night. And he said that um, one of the things that he found particularly helpful as he interacted particularly with Dan last year in our program um, is that uh, he was a guy that um, whenever he counsels, he quickly teaches. He's very knowledgeable and good mind and good verbal skills. And boy, you give him a problem and he'll give you a half an hour lecture on how to solve it. Empathy is not one of his strong suits. Um, he's learning and actually doing very well. But... Um, but he really teaches a whole lot just to kind of, because he's not sure that he can handle uh, um, a deeper relational kind of a thing is the way it's been. And, and Dan's response to him was just to ruthlessly expose all that and say, you know, I, I don't think you ought to counsel for 10 years. I think you're horrible. I think the way you handle things is just a defensive, manipulative. You know, and Dan just tore into this guy and stayed with him. And that's a key. Never tear into somebody that you aren't willing to stay with. Dan stayed with him. Dan was very direct. This guy told me last night, he said the most powerful aspect of the year was that, was that Dan never encouraged me in that sloppy sense of the word by saying, hey, things are not so bad, you're doing all right. He told me how bad things really were and then stuck with me. He said that made me feel for the first time in my life that somebody could look at me, he said, because I knew what Dan was saying was true. Dan wasn't giving me new thoughts. He was giving me thoughts that I was running from, but I kind of knew it was true. But as Dan said all that to me, and I was able to, to hear that, my expectation was that if... <laughs> what Dan was saying was... <laughs> it's a technique that we use now and then. We trust that you'll master it in the course of this seminar. But he really expected that Dan was going to back away at that point. And the very fact that he didn't was the most powerful message he could have heard. You see? Um, the notion of, of, of somehow pretending that things are not as bad as they are as a basis for encouragement does nothing but reinforce fear. I don't know if I could. Um, it's on tape, right? Get the tape. <laughs> it's just after the... The notion that uh, when, we, when we try to encourage by pretending things are not as bad as they are, the real effect of that is to reinforce fear. What we're really doing is saying there's something that's going on that I'm not prepared to deal with. It's too scary for me to look at. 
Yeah, it sure does. What a point. It really communicates disrespect that by not dealing with what's going on in the other person's life, what you're saying is I regard you as a weakling. And I'm going to treat you with real kid gloves because you couldn't possibly handle the truth. Now, there's such a thing as timing and developmentally moving into certain areas. But yes, the ultimate is that you want to be saying that whatever is true right now in your life, you can deal with because there's a God. And if you're a person with any degree of integrity and faith at all, then it can be dealt with in the strength of God. So we need to reverse denial by, by never minimizing the difficulties. And in matter of fact, we need to not so much maximize the difficulties. I don't want to say that. Um, we don't want to make it worse than it is. But make it as bad as it is. Make it as bad as it is. The, um, <laughs> um, talking with a, a friend of mine, it was a real difficult marriage. He had a very interesting sentence to me just about two weeks ago. Real difficult marriage. A wife that's just a major, major problem. And he said to me, you know, he said, um, I was at a low point about two weeks ago, and he was encouraging me. And encouraging me by essentially saying uh, how God had used me to be a help to him. And that was good to hear, and I enjoyed that kind of encouragement. That's, that's legitimate. But he said, you know, the time when you had the greatest impact on me, and I was thinking, you know, was it a seminar? Was it one of my brilliant sentences to you in counseling? Or when was it? He said, no. He says, I'll tell you when it was. I came to one of your seminars, and we were in the hotel room together, and you and Dan and I were there, and, um, and I brought up some of my real marital struggles, and I was in real pain, and you made a comment to me as to how you thought I should handle it, and Dan disagreed with you. Did I mention this last night? I was telling somebody this story just last night. And uh, Dan differed with you and said, well, Larry, I don't think you ought to do that. And then you differed back with Dan, and you guys went on for half an hour coming into no consensus at all as to what I should be doing. And he said, that was the most encouraging that ever happened to me. And I said, you want to you help me with that a little? Um, and he said, what really occurred to me is that, is that things in my marriage really are confusing. And that you guys are supposed to have some answers. You really don't. And that what really, needs to, what really needs to be is not to chart out, this is the right path at this point, this is the wrong path. Obviously, there are certain parameters. There are certain clear rights that God has laid down and certain clear wrongs. But this guy was living in the clear rights. I mean, he wasn't beating his wife or having adultery or ignoring his wife. He wasn't doing that. He was working towards loving his wife. But he wasn't sure if he should share this with her or that with her. And Dan and I had our theories and our thoughts, and we could back it up. You know, we were diametrically opposed. And uh, his response was to say that, you know, things really are more confusing than, than, um, than I thought. I kept on holding out hope that somebody could tell me exactly what to do. And, and, I, and I guess maybe that's not going to happen. Things really are confusing. They're, they're as bad as I really thought they were. Thank you for helping me to see that you don't have much to offer me. And on the basis of that, he was strongly encouraged. That's helping. That was a technique, of course, and dance on my part. We had that carefully planned. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Basically, Mike's pull on her was the same pull on me that don't you hold me accountable. I want you to take care of me. You'll hear in the tape tomorrow morning how Mike's image of himself is very much a little boy that needs to be kind of helped through life. And, um, and that's the pull that he's had on Janine. So when Janine, just to repeat what you've said, which is, which is a good point. So when Janine basically said that, I guess my problem really has more to do with Dad than with Mike. That's essentially what she said. Um, while, while she really has some sense in which she believes that's true, she has had some meaningful struggles with her dad. It was a way of saying that. It was, her, her saying it was a way of getting, the, getting Mike off the hook a little bit. And that's just disrespectful. And in the course of some of the sessions that you won't see, that point was made. And, uh, and, said to, and said to Mike, you know, how do you feel when she talks like that? Do you feel respected and strong? And the answer is you don't. 
It's when your wife is able to speak to you very directly that you feel much more respected and strong. Just last week, um, when I wasn't doing real well about something, uh, something came up at home, and I was in a bit of a, oh, a mild, um, how do I put it, um, not real mature, um, just a tiny lapse, as I was storming around the house, and, and I was going to do something, and my wife, I mean, I was really discouraged, I really was, and my wife sentenced to me at that point, I remember when I was thinking, well, I'm just going to do this, and she said, Larry, I think that would be a really mistake, I think that would be a foolish thing to do, I think you're really making a mistake. And I was feeling like I didn't know what to do about anything, but I was going to go do something, you know. And when she said that, my first thought was, you know, thanks for the encouragement. I didn't say that, but I felt it and said something not too far from that. <laughs> and she later said to me, she later said to me, um, you know, I was really scared, that, really scared to say that to you. And we talked about it later. I said, man, I appreciate your courage because you ministered to me at great personal risk. And as you said that, my thought was, huh, I'm not getting away with my pull. Because she's respecting me enough to treat me like an adult as opposed to give in to my childish nonsense. And that really helped a whole lot. That was encouragement. That was respect. Why would Janine want to protect Mike? Um, what, is, what is she really... Uh, I, would, I would suggest this, that ultimately she's not protecting Mike. Ultimately, it's self-protection. Now, how does that work? As I would see it as be this, that she wants to protect Mike so that she's protected from the realization that Mike's as weak as he really is. I don't want to acknowledge that Mike is really as bad as he really is. I don't want to be all that I am with Mike because I, th I think he'd crumble and wouldn't come through for me. So let me kind of keep Mike intact enough by not letting him see all that I am, because he'd crumble at that probably. So let me, let me not make Mike face all that he really is, so then I can keep some measure of intactness. I don't have to face how badly let down I really am. That, that's, that's really what, what it was, and she acknowledged that later. Oh, yeah. You'll hear in the tape coming up, uh, Janine, when have you ever been able to honestly be all that you are with the confidence that you'd be accepted? And her answer was never. See, that's where the Lord comes in, because that's true of any of us. I mean, I have no confidence in any of you. Not ultimately, nor in my wife, nor in my parents, nor in Dan. These are good people that love me a bunch, but they've let me down. That's where the Lord becomes rather indispensable. Um, that's understatement, by the way. <laughs> I think I hear, a, I hear a question here that I'd like to respond to. It's a really good one. The thought that, that yes, um, we, we, we do need to make a point um, to, to not minimize the difficulties and, uh, and to, to speak rather openly about how difficult the struggle is as a way of respecting the person and not strengthening their fear that whatever's there can be dealt with. But is there not a time when you wouldn't do that? Is there not a time when a person is struggling and they just don't need at that moment to face one more bad thing? And they just need to have you there um, just kind of caring and just being involved and just making you, you know, a bowl of soup and just giving you a hug and saying, I'm for you. Is there not a time just to be there as opposed to bringing out how difficult things are? And I guess I want to say a couple things about that. I wish I had some formulas to give you. I wish I had some real clear things. When this, then do that. When this, then do the other. I have nothing like that in the world because the Christian life is not mechanistic. It's spirit-led. And, and that means that I've got to be thinking and, and living by what's going to feel like intuition. As I, as I must let the word of Christ dwell richly in me, 
And I must be thinking biblically and I have to simply trust that as I yield myself the Spirit of God that that kind of wisdom will be granted. But let me say a couple things in addition to that essential premise. And I would say this, that do I have the kind of relationship with the person where, where it's clear that the reason that um, I would not bring out certain bad things is not because I'm afraid to. Um, let me just speak about Dan and me. I think we have that kind of relationship. Dan's willing to bring out some things that are very difficult. And I know that whenever he does not bring out things that are difficult, whenever he sees me low or I see him low and he just kind of lets me know he cares and he's there, that's not because he's afraid to bring out more difficult things. The person who is not afraid to bring out more difficult things, the person who isn't afraid to get into the guts of what's bad, that's the person who when they don't bring out how bad things are, but just kind of are there for you, that's when it is power. But the person who is this kind of has, stays there with the sense of presence because they're scared to bring out the more difficult thing, that person has no power. That strikes me as an important point. Look at the next point. 2B. Strengthening by drawing out the potential for courage. One of the most difficult things it seems to me to get hold of is the valid use of affirmation. What is affirmation encouraging? We all like to be affirmed. Nothing's wrong with wanting to be affirmed. Our Lord will affirm us in that day when he says, well done. So affirmation itself is hardly a bad word. It's a good word, but it often is a bad thing. When do you, when's affirmation bad? How can affirmation be a bad thing? Yeah. All right, there's one point, yeah. Absolutely. When you're simply looking for ways to affirm and you say what you don't really mean, either what is not coming out of your soul or what is not true about the person. It can be untrue in really two ways. Uh, untrue, one, that what you're affirming really isn't there. You know, boy, you've really shown courage there when the person has just been a weakling. When it's not true, there's no power to affirmation. And secondly, when your affirmation is just a technique as opposed to coming out of your soul. Is there really a, a deep sense in which you've been touched by that person's virtue in a way that you want to share with them that your virtue, your way of dealing with things, your whatever, your courage, your strength, really has gripped me in a way that I'm, that I'm encouraged. Let me affirm you in that way. That's powerful affirmation. When it isn't coming from your soul, but rather as a technique, time to affirm, or when you're affirming that which really isn't there, but you think, it's, you, think you ought to affirm anyhow, you're going to have no power. Other ways in which affirmation is a bad thing, much a bad word, How do you do that? All right, when you're using affirmation to build yourself in the eyes of another so they'll think well of you, that they'll see you as an affirming kind of a person. Well, there's a kind of person that's always in, has a good word for everybody. Yeah, okay. When affirmation, to put it uh, more generally, to take your specific point and to make a general principle out of it, when affirmation really is part of your own self-protection or self-enhancement. There'll be no power to it then. Let me suggest that there's a valid place for affirmation, and we dare not overlook this. As we talk about exposing pain and all this horrible-sounding stuff, there's a real place for just real, strong, meaningful, rich affirmation. Um, I think you'll hear a little bit of that. I think a few times I'd like to think that I do that with, with, with Mike and Janine. Um, I think, either, was it this morning's tape or the next one coming up? I get them confused, where, where I said to Janine, something along the line of, it really took courage for you to say that. That's, that's affirmation. It took courage. Janine, I, I really respect you for that. You know, you're, you're doing something that's hard right now. Do you sense when a person is doing something which is hard? Let me suggest that affirmation should generally revolve around courage. 
I wouldn't make that a blanket statement, but I think it's a useful thought. And the reason I say that is this, that if the word encourage basically means to help a person uh, continue on, if encourage, is the, if, if, if encourage somebody is the idea of telling the runner halfway through the race, keep running. I know your legs are sore. I know you're out of breath. I know you need a glass of water. You want to find a bench and sit. But keep moving. It isn't time. Let's labor. The rest is coming, but let's labor for now. That what you want to affirm as a person that's running the Christian race really is courage. It takes courage to be a Christian. It takes courage to get up. It takes courage to move on. And whenever I see somebody acting courageously, I want to draw that out. And I want to say something. When, uh, if, if, if Mike in this tape would have, when I, when I exposed the fact that his, at his best, Janine saw him as a mother, if he'd have turned to Janine with any, kind, any sense of struggle at all and said, you know, I, I don't know how to touch you. Well, I'd have affirmed him. I said, oh, Mike, that's so good. For you to turn to her, that must have been hard for you to do. For you to admit that you have no idea how to be a husband right now. And to make yourself vulnerable to her saying, yeah, you don't know how to touch me. You're you're going through some real courage now. Just to draw out the potential for courage. Whenever you see a little bit of it, to make much of it. Just to draw it out and talk about it. The person that's willing to persevere, that's the person who has courage. Stage four maturity, to me, is definable in terms of courage. Whatever little bit of courage you see, affirm. Strengthening by drawing out the potential for courage. What do your minds do with that? What's happening in your minds as I ramble about that for the last few moments? Sure. And then to even add, as you encourage them to do that which is difficult, the little child sliding in the pool or the, the, the board in the pool, whatever, or um, in the restaurant going to the bathroom by themselves, that kind of thing, um, that as you acknowledge their fear but encourage them to do it, and then as you see some little uh, sense in which you know they want to do it, just to call that forth. I like that phrase, to call forth the potential for movement and to say to that person, I know you really want this. I know you really want this. And, and just to any movement towards that is the courage of, of yielding to that appropriate want. Mike, I know you want to move towards Janine. You know, if you don't want to move towards Janine, if there's nothing in you that wants to move towards her, you might as well save her a lot of grief and get a divorce. That's sinful, but it sure beats the sin you're doing now. You know. Uh, but, but I know that isn't true of you, Mike. I know that you want to move towards Janine. You aren't happy with the way things are. And, and you're struggling to do that. And I admire the fact that you're at least glancing in that direction. Yeah. What about the act of keeping coming in for counseling? I mean, um, I noticed that you, I don't know how you make it a take in the beginning exactly when they walk in the door, um, but how do you see a couple that comes in for counseling? I think it must include a tremendous amount of courage for them to be, uh, the video aside, just to come in and, ex- and expose themselves to you. Yeah, you're making a very valid point. If you look hard enough, you'll find something to affirm. And just the fact of coming in by itself can be reason to affirm, but you have to be very careful with that. Because as you just pointed out, that many times the reason for coming in is pretty miserable. And I'm going to come in so you can see how my wife's really bad and deal with her. You know, I don't affirm that. But the notion of, uh, you know, I, I really sense, Mike, that you want to come in, not, not just to have, you, you're not here just to have me beat up on your wife. You're here because you, you, you just must know something's wrong inside. And you know I'm going to be dealing with that. 
And the fact that you're willing to come in and talk about that, I admire that. That wouldn't be a wrong thing to say at all. Maybe I should say, and I guess I haven't made it clear, this was the first formal counseling session we had, but certainly we had conversations before this about the videotaping and are you willing to be videotaped, and we certainly had conversations before. They didn't come in and say, by the way, there's cameras there. <laughs> you know, we had some extensive conversations, and there was some affirmation of that in terms of their courage and willingness to let their lives be on display to some degree to try to be of some help to some other folks. But it's that, that's, that's the four-stage model I'm talking about. It's the stage one reactor and victim and agent and then uh, dependent dignity. And the, the ultimate immaturity, it seems to me, is where, where courage is at its best, where I'm willing to really persevere very strongly. one of the central messages of the cross and that is that you can keep on no matter how often you blow it. Schaefer talks about it as true spirituality where one of the transforming implications of the gospel message for him was that the Lord is going to forgive me again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And when you blow it, you pick up again because the grace of God is still sufficient. There still is forgiveness. So yeah, the encouragement of saying, yeah, you did blow it as opposed to trying to say, well, that was really a good thing or just being a good mom. That would not be encouraging because you know it really isn't true. But to say, yeah, I really did, did think you blow it. I don't think you did real well that time. That's really true. And yet, I know what you want to do. And I know that God's able. Now, keep on. You're going to make it. That's just, don't be immobilized by your defeat and say, why even go back and visit my kid? Because all I do is make a mess of it. No, that's not adequate. We're just going to look for where we're comfortable. But encouragement means go back to the arena of failure. Go back to where you've blown it and continue on. And the person who's encouraging by saying, by affirming the potential for courage, and saying that you blew it, you blew it, but you can do it again. And when you blow it again next week, go back again the week after. That's affirming the potential for courage, which is my second point, which is I appreciate the real-life illustration of that. Third point. We'll get to it in just a moment. Third point, yeah, no, your question, I'll take my point after yours. Well, you've got to decide where the person is. You know, the Apostle Paul, in his first five chapters of Romans, uh, talked about the grace of God in such a way that he had to write the first couple of verses of Romans 6. He talks about where sin abounds, grace thus much more abound. And then he had to go on, if you're saying it so strongly that no matter how often you fail, the grace is there. He said it so strongly that, that Romans 6 was necessary to kind of balance it off and say, shall we therefore continue in sin that grace can abound? And Paul says, wait a minute, if that's what you're hearing, you've missed my whole message. I'm not saying that you have a blanket opportunity to sin and God will just forgive, because a Christian is one who, who, who ultimately doesn't want to sin, who really believes that the path to life is Christ, not 
not, not sin. And the person who, uh, as, as, as this woman shares, that she blew it with her son, if her first thought is, oh good, it's easier to blow it, so I'll just keep on blowing it, and I'll keep on calling my friend up every week so she can tell me it's okay. You know, that's not what I hear her doing. If it were what she was doing, then I think she ought to be dealt with a little differently. And when you start hearing that a person is using the grace of God and the opportunity of forgiveness and repentance as an excuse for continuing in sin, when that becomes obvious, then you start talking about that and saying that it seems to me that what you're really believing is life is not in Christ. What you're really believing is life and it isn't honoring your self-protection and you're looking for reasons to justify that and reasons to kind of say it's okay to continue because the cross is sufficient or whatever. And now you're just copying out on a sinful lifestyle. You've, you've missed the whole point of Romans 6. Oh yeah. The person who, in fact, is using the cross as how did you put it, uh, an, an, uh, an anesthetic, that um, no matter how much I sin, it's kind of okay, so I'll just keep on copying out. If you sense that's what's going on, then the word encouragement is always going to mean that you're, you're coming alongside of, that's the idea of the word, to come alongside of and to encourage movement in good directions. That's the idea of encourage. Oh, yeah. You see, we just must get beyond the notion that encouragement is just some sort of a, some sort of a pet. Um, here's a verse, and sure, think a lot of you, and Lord bless you, and I'm for you, and all that. That, that by itself is just not encouragement. It's cur- uh, to, to, for me to encourage you means that I've got to know you a little bit. And I've got to do whatever is going to move alongside of you and move you in a good direction, which might be a rebuke, which might be backing away from you for a given time. Or which might be just coming alongside and saying, I just feel for you. I know it's hard. could be a whole variety of things. Don't let the word encourage be limited to some sort of warm interchange. Let the word encouragement mean whatever is going to encourage the runner to keep running the race or to get back in the race when they've taken a sidetrack. We'll take one more comment and move on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. No, right. Yes, yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, what it means to encourage, just get it very simply in your mind, that in my understanding, encouragement, as I encourage you, it isn't that I'm trying to, to, to fundamentally build our relationship. I hope that happens. I want it to happen. But my encouragement of you is that I really want to see you grow in the Lord, whatever that, whatever that means. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.